We're in the book of Acts tonight. Would you grab a Bible and make your way there? We're in Acts chapter 4. Try to make about a chapter a week as we journey through the Bible on Wednesday nights. We didn't quite finish chapter 4 last week, and so we're going to dive back in, finish uh, chapter 4, and make it about halfway through chapter 5. Uh, uh, for, for us, we'll get, in the next week, we'll come back and finish 5. But tonight, we want to be here, and so hoping you brought a Bible and you're making your way there. Um, Bible's in front of you if you've got one. Uh, always, as we say, electronic device if you want to use a Bible app in that as well. One way or another, have the, the Bible open so that you're with us, that God would speak to you through His Word and drawing you to what He has for you. Overflow online, just please, if you're there, hear the same invitation. We love you. We're so glad that you're with us, but we invite you to be with us. Have a Bible and join us uh, in this space so that God would meet us and bring us into those things that He has in store for us. So Bible's open. Let's take a moment and just open our hearts. Ask God to help us that we would indeed hear what he has us to hear this evening, and that would work inside of you and inside of me. Father, right now, as we head towards this space, studying your word together, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the opportunity. But I'm also asking that it wouldn't just be going through the motions. It wouldn't just be us being here. But you who see us, who know us, you would work reality. You would draw us to what you are and what you have. God, look on where we are and, and help us to understand that this evening, understand the passages before in front of us. Some of them are challenging. Some of the thoughts are challenging. Help us to understand, but more to hear. God, you're the only one that can do that, but more than that, what we need is your work, that real work that you want to do inside of us. Here we are. Here we are, Lord. Do that in us now. Through your power in this space, in your word, we ask for that together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Half the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Hey, that's a good quote for us to launch into it this evening. George MacDonald just speaking it. And just again, I want you to think about it. Just as a, as just a space of just or even just maybe some of the reality there that half of the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. Tonight we want to see that reality. We're going to come face to face with that here in the book of Acts and God seeking to draw us to, to even what that would look like and draw us to the right side of that. Well, before we really get there, we need to set the backdrop and that backdrop is found in this final section. Uh, uh, here in, in chapter uh, 4 as we're there, and it begins with a place where we get a glimpse into the health of the church, one of these status reports uh, that are in the book of Acts, letting us kind of see what's happening there. So notice it with me. You're there in chapter 4, verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who were believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. 
it's just a pretty powerful description. Even just this quick snapshot that the Holy Spirit gives us into this place, and we find that there's just a multitude of believers, and the life that they're having is a growing life. In fact, we know from the first part of the chapter that that multitude is over 5,000. Hey, you can look back to the beginning of the chapter, and you see it there uh, in the midst of it in verse 4. It says, however, those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So I just want you to process that. I mean, it's hard to even wrap your mind around it. This is really the church exploding. Uh, it, it's happened now from the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people got saved. Uh, the gospel continued to go forward in incredible ways. And now it's about 5,000 people that are a part of, of, of the church of Jesus Christ there. And amazing things are happening. I mean, amazing things are happening. It gives us this space that not only are they there, but again, just in the description, they were of one heart and one soul. There's a supernatural unity that's taking place in the midst of that, that which does exist in Christ for us, never something that we actually have to create. The Bible says that we ought to keep the unity of the Spirit, that we recognize if we're one in Christ, we are one. And yet it's just incredible ways happening here. And there's this unity, there's a sense of God's power. In fact, I love the way, again, it says it in verse 33. It says, with great power, the apostles gave witness um, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. So they're, they're holding fast to Christ. They're declaring him there's great power. And in the midst of that, they're meeting each other's needs. Uh, it says, again, they're back in verse 32, no one said anything that he had was his own, uh, but they had all things together in common. In fact, you can go on down to verse 34. It says, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all those who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. I just want you to gaze into this, but I want you to see how amazing, how beautiful it is, because it's much more beautiful than you might even just understand. I mean, there's this space here where they're just taking care of one another. Now, we know this because of what we already know from the Gospels and things that we're adding into that. The needs were big. Uh, the, the Jewish nation as a whole has rejected Jesus. They've rejected him even during his ministry. They'd begun, uh, you know, making things like when the, the, the man who was born blind, uh, you know, had gone there and they basically come up with a declaration and said, anybody who confesses Christ, you're out. You know, you're, you're going to be kicked out of the, of, of the, of the worship. You're going to be kicked out of uh, being able to go and to seek Jesus. You're going to be kicked out of spaces. And so what we recognize is that for many of these 5,000 people, who just gave their lives to Christ, not only is that a radical transition for them, not only are they radically beginning in Christ, for many of them, they are now just kicked out of their families. Uh, they, they're losing jobs. They're losing uh, their space in that society. The cost uh, of becoming a believer there is a heavy cost. It's a heavy cost, and yet they're, they're taking it. I mean, that radical step of believing in Jesus and that culture that it's a little bit hard for us to imagine. Again, you live here in the United States, and uh, you know, I don't know how it was when you gave your life to Christ. Maybe, again, it was a little bit that way. Maybe your family or friends really were that opposed to you being a believer. But for the most part, it's, you know, people in our, in our culture isn't that way. But if I were to take you to another side of the world, take you to over to many of the Muslim countries today, this is exactly what they face. 
It's like, okay, so wait, if I'm going to become a Christian, I'm going to get kicked out of my family. I'm going to be cut off from everything I know. Uh, you know, I might lose my job. Um, I'm going to lose my status. I mean, what's going to happen? I mean, just the, the weight of that is, is a huge thing. And we have a number of missionaries that serve in those capacities. It's certainly something uh, that you can pray for. But in the midst of them, imagine it now. 5,000 people just did that. And boy, the needs are massive. I mean, how are we going to take care of 5,000 people, many of them that have no place to live right now, have no place, no means of taking care of themselves? And so the church responds. It responds in a beautiful way where people just began caring for one another. It says no one said anything that they were their own. They began watching over each other in some uh, amazing ways and, and good spaces in the midst of that. And one of the things you just need to understand is this was not a forced thing. This is not communism. Uh, some people would look at that and they would say, hey, you know, this is kind of, you know, the, the, the bedrock of communism. This is how communism works. Communism doesn't work this way. Communism is oppressive and, and, and ultimately restrictive. This isn't that. This isn't a forced thing. This isn't something that anybody had to do. In fact, we're going to see more of that in, in chapter 5, but it's just that which people did do, not out of mandate, not out of requirement, but out of love, just because they began to care for each other, which is exactly what Jesus asked us to do, right? He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And that's incredible. That's a great space for us to kind of process through and think through, hey, that's exactly what's happening. And I love watching that. Now, before we press past that, um, I just want to speak it as honestly and clearly as I can. Uh, I love this fellowship. I love watching you do this. I mean, I don't know if you, if, you, if you see it as much as I get to see it. I don't know how aware of it, but you guys are a loving fellowship, and you take care of one another. It, it's the kind of space that, you know, wherever there's a need, usually there's several people that kind of flock to a need, and, and you're, you're praying for one another. You're caring for one another. I mean, every now and then I get somebody come into the office, and they're like, hey, you know, I, I just want to help somebody out. I want to help a family out. Tell me some needs that you have there. And, it, and honestly, it's like one of those things that's like, I don't know. I think mean, almost all the needs I know of are met. I mean, maybe you keep them secret, and if you do, you should let us know. But I know this. Boy, when I hear about some of those things, and then we'll kind of reach out, hey, we need to find out how they're doing, we'll find out, oh, like three people are already meeting that need. <laughs> like, like there's already like, they beat you there. You're too slow. You know, it's like, okay, I'm too slow. You guys are amazing. I mean, honestly, it's a beautiful thing. And it's a beautiful thing because, honestly, you guys love each other. And, and I just speak that in life to you, but also because that's a little bit what this is. I mean, there's a space where there's huge and tremendous needs, and, and people are responding to it. They're responding to it, uh, you know, again, going back to verse 32, where it says, Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own. He says, boy, you know, I'll help out. When my stuff is your stuff. Like whatever, if, if I can help, I'll, I'll, I'll step into that space. And at the same moment, again, never moving away. Never moving away from the, the solid witness of, of Christ. Never kind of getting lost in that. But they're solidly holding fast to the resurrection and God's grace is upon them. And I just want to tell you, that's a beautiful snapshot. It's a beautiful snapshot. It, just in its beautiful balance of holding this, 
holding to God's truth, holding fast to the resurrection, at the same moment walking in love. And again, for some of you, you would understand, hey, there's so often where churches can go one way or the other. Like they're all love and no truth, or they're all truth and no love. And yet here in this snapshot, we're watching them hold fast to God, hold fast to His truth. Grace is happening, and yet love is happening in such a beautiful way. Needs are being met. All of that's happening, and so that snapshot of this moment, which is just the beginning, the beginning of the church you know, that we're a part of, of the church of Jesus Christ, yet in that, things are beginning to take place, and you just got to feel this because, again, it's an important understanding. At the same moment, there are those who were highly esteemed, uh, respected, because that's exactly what they're doing. Go back to it again in verse 34. It says, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. They brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and they laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. I mean, nobody's lacking. <laughs> There's not anybody. I mean, they're taking care of everybody. Uh, all those who could help are helping. It's a beautiful moment. And then we get this snapshot of someone who is a part of that. Verse 36, and Joseph, who was also named Barabbas by the apostles, um, I'm sorry, Barnabas, excuse me, by the apostles, which was translated son of encouragement, a Levite in the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas. Hey, this is our first encounter with him in the book of Acts. But for most of you, you're like, I know Barnabas. I know him. He's a, he's, I mean, this man is going to be Paul's traveling companion. He's going to be one of the ones that helps spread the gospel of the church. And yet this is this first moment. And we learned right off the bat, it wasn't even his name. I mean, his real name is Joseph. You know, that's, that's his given name in the midst of that. But the apostles change his name. And they give him a nickname which is son of encouragement, which is Barnabas. And boy, I, I don't know. I don't know about you, but I just find that fascinating. I mean, I just find that like this amazing thing. I don't know about you. I don't know if you have a nickname. I don't know if anybody's given you a nickname, um, but I, I wonder if it's anything as cool as this. I mean, in, in, in many ways, just a space where you would be so known for it. I mean, here's a man who must have been that kind of guy that Every time they got together, he was loving on somebody, encouraging them, uh, coming alongside people until they're kind of like, dude, like you got, you're, you're, like, you're like the son of encouragement. You know? And then people just began giving him that name. It's like, man, you are so, you're such a blessing. I mean, you're always looking out for people. You're always just kind of speaking into their lives. You're always helping in the midst of that. And so here he does that. Now, not only is he doing this with his words, but again, he's one of those who are, who are doing this very thing, who is taking his own uh, just, you know, money, his own wealth, and is reaching out into this very peculiar and very difficult moment in history as these 5,000 believers are there. And again, I just want you to see it. Verse 36, and jo so Joseph, who is named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, he's a Levite of the country of Cyprus having land. He sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So without being too technical, we watch this, this, this whole thing. There are a number of interesting little questions, by the way. Um, he's a Levite that's owning land. By the way, that, that's probably problematic. It's like, wait a second. I thought the Levites didn't own 
land because that was the point. <laughs> you know, they were supposed to be set up, but somehow he did. And so, you know, whether that's brokenness that was a part of his life before this, uh, whether however it happened, it would seem to be a little, but, but man, he lays it down. He lays it down. He, he owns land and he's like, hey, I don't need it. I don't need it, but let's, let's meet needs with this. Let's, let's help each other out with this. And so you kind of need to feel right now that at this moment, he is highly respected. He is highly respected both for his encouragement, but even for his willingness uh, to step into this moment, even for his willingness uh, to meet those needs. That's important because the very next word begins with a contrast, right? So go down to Acts chapter 5, verse 1, and it begins with that word, but, but a certain man named Ananias. So just pause there. You probably know this, but it's just good for me to remind you every now and then, chapter breaks were not in the original language. I mean, that's not how Luke wrote this. He didn't write, you know, Acts chapter 4 and then wrote Acts chapter... No, that wasn't given till, till cent- just centuries ago, that in many ways they, they, they broke up the Bible into chapters and verses, and we're really thankful for it, or we'd never be able to locate it with each other. We'd never be able to say, hey, go to chapter 4, verse 32. We can do that, but it's helpful at times just to remind you hey, don't ever read that as if they're meant to be in the text, a break in subject, and this one certainly is not. Because it begins with that, you know, but. It begins with, in chapter 5, but. And so you have to say, well, like, but what? I mean, why, why do we say but? Well, because we just talked about it. Hey, Joseph, Barnabas, he is the son of encouragement. I mean, they gave him a nickname. I mean, he's doing so good, and, and everybody's talking about him. Everybody's like, man, did you see what Barnabas did? I mean, boy, he is such an amazing guy. We love him so much. I mean, he's got this esteem. He's got this respect. And so the chapter then begins, but in contrast to that, kind of in odds with that, we have now another story. It's one that you know, I'm sure, from most of you here this evening, but it's a, it's a troubling account. It's a troubling account of hypocrisy that finds itself in this moment of the church with Ananias and Sapphira. Well, let's just read the first part of that, beginning again in verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself while it remained? Was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Okay. We need to think about this just for a few moments. And again, I'm recognizing that, again, for many of you, this is a count you already know. I mean, Ananias and Sapphira, they are like one of those places that many are like, oh, I know that story, or I used to know a little bit about it, but we need to kind of walk around it to make sure we're not confused, to make sure that we are seeing it in a right way. So here's what we know. They sell a piece of property just like Barnabas did. 
Barnabas sold a piece of property, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet. End of chapter 4. Well, they, verse 1, you know, sell a possession. And they kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, verse 2, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So don't misunderstand this. The problem is not that they kept a portion of the proceeds. It's not a problem. This isn't forced. This isn't communism. This isn't, uh, you know, some space that they had to give up everything that's there. No, the problem is they pretend to give everything. Uh, The problem is that in the midst of it, they're going to come and present it as if, hey, they sold the land and gave the whole thing to God. So again, I know that probably makes sense, but let's just imagine it for a second. Let's just say um, they went and they sold the land and they made $100,000. That'll just be easy math for us right now to think about it. And yet he and his wife have this conversation like, you know, honey, we should like keep like 30000 uh, But we'll give $70,000. we will give $70,000 uh, into this need, but we'll just tell everybody that we sold it for $70,000. Uh, you know, nobody has to know uh, that, that we are, you know, you know, profiting from this or keeping back because we, you know, we, we, we want to be kind of in the same space. And so they decide to lie and, and, and lie about what it cost, about what the cost of the land was so that they could have the same respect uh, that Barnabas has. They want to be on that same level. They're looking at this guy that gets the nickname Barnabas. And they're like, I, wanna, I want people to like me like that. Like, I want to have the same respect. I want to have the same esteem. And so they're aiming at this in order for that. Okay. So we begin to understand a little bit what that is. And again, it gives us this picture of what we'll just say is blatant hypocrisy. Blatant hypocrisy. Now, this is hard for us. And again, we just need to process this through for a moment because you probably understand what it is and you understand what hypocrisy is. And in truth, all of us struggle with it. I mean, we struggle with it and we want to make sure we talk about that as honestly and carefully as we can this evening. But probably all of us hate it as well. Most people do. I mean, people who, you know, give, a, give the problem why they don't want to come to church or any of those things. We, 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 we look upon this, and there's something about what hypocrisy is that finds itself both a struggle and an offense. So hypocrisy means to pretend. That's what it literally means. So a hypocrite, the, the Greek word that is translated for hypocrisy, literally means to act or be an actor. It wasn't always in the Greek culture seen as a negative word. It wasn't always seen the way we see it. I mean, we say hypocrite, and you, you're just right off the bat. You're like, that's bad. <laughs> I know that. I don't even have to, like, there's no sense that that would ever be a compliment to us. It wasn't necessarily so in that age. To, to be a hypocrite was to, to act. And so you'd have somebody who would get up on a Greek stage in those days, doing the dramas that they would do in the midst of that. And, and literally, some of them would play multiple parts. And so you'd have the Greek actors, and they'd have, you know, kind of the masks, you know, the happy mask, the sad mask, and you know, it's like, okay, now I'm the happy guy, now I'm the sad guy, and, 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 and so you had this persona that you were projecting that wasn't really who you were, but everybody knew that. I mean, when you're on stage, it's like they know that. I mean, like, I know that's not actually who you are, but the problem is when that becomes what is attempted within the church and within our lives that that becomes the projection, that that becomes the space 
that would, would seek to do that that way and, and aiming for that. Again, not just in one sense struggling with this. And again, I'm trying to think about how to say this as carefully, accurately, and, and let it land where it needs to land. But for most of us, again, we struggle with it. We struggle with that space that who of us doesn't want to be considered better than we are? I mean, there's like, anybody here is like, nope, I actually am totally good. You know, people think, you know, we, like, I'd love for you to think better of me. I mean, I'm, of course, that's, you know, kind of something that would be in the midst of that. But to actually seek it out through deception, to come up with a plan to lie in such a way that people will think you're something you're not, that's a whole different level of this. That's where that is. Jesus would talk about it this way when he talked about the Pharisees, and he said, you know, they, but all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad, they enlarge the, the border of their garments, and he goes through and gives a long list about it, but he simply says, here's the thing. When they think about doing something, they're thinking, they want people to be, they're, they're aiming at what people would think about them. They're aiming at that, and so even their religious trappings, phylacteries would be kind of these little boxes they would wear on their heads that carried scriptures. He says they, they do it for show, like they're, they're doing it because they want you to think they're spiritual, and so they're, they're making them big, they're doing all of these things, but he says they do it to be seen by men. In fact, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said it this way, he said, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. He says, make sure when you are living out your Christian life, when trying to do this, whatever it is, you know, giving, praying, serving, whatever it is, make sure that it's for God. Make sure that your aim is for Him. Make sure that He's the focus. Make sure that that's what you're doing, because if that's not what you're doing, you're, that's your reward. Your reward is what you aimed for it in the midst of that, and that again becomes the problem. So I go back to that quote I began you with just a few moments ago, and again, just want you to think about how real this is. Half the misery in the world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. It's an incredible danger when you're more concerned about how you look than actually who you are, when that isn't just a, a kind of an underlying struggle, but that when that becomes your intentional aim uh, to deceive uh, to do what Ananias and Sapphira do. Again, they actually plan this. They actually have this conversation and, and they come up with a way that they're going to deceive everybody for the sole reason uh, that they you know, are longing to be seen as better. But the spiritual layers of this are so incredibly troubling, right? I mean, you caught the words maybe. I, I, I wonder. It's satanic. It tells us that way in verse 3. It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Right now, he just lets them know, hey, this, this whole motivation, that which is seeking to bring this into your life and bring this into the church in this, in this early moment, this is satanic. This is a satanic strategy. Satan's actually seeking to create harm inside the body of Christ in these early days by introducing this thought. And that's interesting, problematic on a number of levels, but incredibly interesting, and it's just a reminder, hey, Satan is active. I mean, he, this is like the first days of the church, and he's already trying to create problems in the midst of it. He's been doing this for 2,000 years. He's still good at it, and he still seeks to do that, and, and, and he actually sows a, sows a thought. 
into Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, he says Satan had filled their minds so they would think, oh, that's, that's a great idea. Like, we should do that. But then he says, here's what you're doing. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. Yeah, catch it again. Verse 3. says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? Like, it was yours. You could do whatever you wanted with it. Nobody made you do anything with it after it was sold. It was yours. You could do anything you wanted with it. You, you, you could have you know, kept it. You could have given part of it. You could have done anything you want. But why have you conceived this in your heart? You have not lied to men. You've been lying to God. You're, you're lying to God. Wow. Hey, by the way, a little quick nugget. It's just one of those beautiful places that even just kind of gives us that aspect of the deity of the Holy Spirit because he just said, hey, you're lied to the Holy Spirit and you're lying to God. Uh, you, you, know, you haven't lied to men. You, you, you're, you've been lying to the Spirit. You are lying to God. You are lying to God. What a crazy thing that is. Um, I don't know if you ever processed that, you know, kind of in, in, in the whole realm of it, that you can't lie to God. I mean, you know, uh, you know, you, you kind of the old quotes that kind of says, hey, you can, you know, fool all the people some of the time, some of the people, you know, all the time, but you can fool God none of the time. I mean, it's like a zero possibility that you could ever pretend to be something and God be like, oh, I'm totally convinced. You know, like, I totally, get, I'm sold. I mean, I had no idea that you weren't what you were pretending to be, but you're lying to him. And yet to kind of do that, I mean, to kind of come into this moment where that's how you want it to be seen because you're aiming at the wrong things. I find myself thinking of when it talks about it in the Gospels and it speaks to some of the Pharisees who were beginning to believe in Jesus but wouldn't confess him. And it says simply because they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Like they were more concerned about what people would say about them than they were concerned about what God would say about them. Yeah, that's the scary moments. That's where we are. That's, that's what's happening here. And I, I just want you to kind of see that for a few moments and just understand with me, like this is problematic and this is troubling and this is ugly. And I don't think there's anybody here this evening that's like, oh, I don't think that's a problem. I'm totally cool with that. You know, it's just, I think it's a good thing. I mean, I think we would look on and say, that's, that's ugly. I mean, pretending to be what you're not, um, trying to put on a front that makes it seem like you've done something when you didn't really do it. Um, you know, kind of in that sense, stealing, that sense, you know, kind of stealing what that looks like. I mean, you think about what that would look like in a business world where you'd have somebody, some employee that would, I don't know, steal somebody else's work and take credit for themselves kind of thing. We would look upon that and say, that's just wrong. Like, that's just wrong. And for you to try to do that, we're here where you're trying to steal glory that isn't yours to be known. It's just somewhere where we look upon it and just say, yeah, that's bad and it's destructive. I mean, Satan's seeking to sow this into the whole church. So we watch all of that happen. That's ugly all by itself. Probably, you know, raises a few questions, but answers a few. But it's what happens next that becomes somewhat the most hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. So let's just go back and read it for a little bit of context. Just picking up in verse 4, it says, while it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. 
Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. FYI, he died. Like, that's what, like he just right there stops breathing and he dies, like right there in the midst of this. So great fear, verse 5, came upon all those who heard these things. I bet it's so. Um, verse 6, and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered and said, hmm, so tell me, how much did you sell the land for? Tell me if you sold the land for so much. And she said, yeah, so much. So you sold the land for 70000 That's That's kind of what you guys said. Oh, yeah, that's exactly it. We sold the land for 70000 We sold the whole thing, gave the whole thing to the church. It was a great deal. It's like not knowing, hey, we kept back 30000 but nobody needs to know that kind of deal. Um, and she said, yeah, that's how much we sold it for. Uh, then Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband, they're at the door, and they will carry you out. Uh, bummer, by the way. I mean, just bummer for these guys. Like, they just, they just got back from burying the, the husband. They're like, oh, I gotta go bury, you know, they're going to have to go bury another one. And immediately, verse 10, she fell down at his feet, breathed her last. The young men came in and found her dead, carrying her out, buried her, and buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all those of the church and upon all those who heard these things. Wow. Okay, so there's the account. Now you know. I mean, I, I just want you to try to imagine it for a few moments. Again, you're just trying to walk this thing through with me. The, the, the church is beginning. Here's this crazy thing. Peter steps into this. You know, he knows. And it would seem, you know, knows probably from a word of knowledge given by the Holy Spirit. It's like, I know exactly what happened. I know what this is. And I know what you did. And, and, and he, you know, Ananias dies. Three hours later, his wife dies. Uh, their hypocrisy is exposed. Uh, you know, again, they have to bury them in the midst of this. But we walk around this and we have to ask a number of questions because, again, whether you've spent much time on this or little, you would probably just recognize that you would get here to chapter five and go, wow, okay, that's, this is a little bit weird. I mean, like, how am I supposed to process through what's happening here? Well, let me give you a few things that may Maybe not be helpful, but I hope so as we process them. One of the first things that I have a conversation with uh, in my own heart, and maybe this is helpful for you, is sometimes I just recognize that I need to make sure that I'm viewing this with the right perspective. I mean, certainly I, I need to begin with, um, hey, God's right. Uh, so any questions I have right off the bat, I mean, I sometimes will just tell myself that, like, okay, God, I know you're right. <laughs> I know you're right. And, and yet I need to kind of pursue that. But in that perspective, sometimes I need to make sure I see death the way the Bible sees death. So one of the questions that we have in the midst of this is, is Ananias and Sapphira believers in Jesus Christ? Simple answer to that, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the Bible says only God knows. But I'm just going to be honest with you. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. Wouldn't surprise me a bit that these are true believers, uh, that they're really his, and that you and I are going to meet them uh, someday in heaven. Can't say that with any kind of you know, certainty, but it just I want to tell you, it doesn't have to be that they're not. And sometimes that's helpful to me because God can do this sometimes for believers, um, and, and they, you know, he's, he's going to enact judgment upon them. But if he enacts judgment like this across a believer, it's just not that bad. I don't know how to say that differently than I'm saying it. I mean, um, Death is not the end for us. 
I mean, death means we get to go be with Jesus. And so if they're followers of Jesus, absent from the body, they were present with the Lord. I mean, that would be a little bit of a bummer being like, oh, hi. You know, like Ben Lyon, sorry about that. I don't know. But it's still the same moment. It wouldn't be that bad. I mean, in the midst of it. I mean, sometimes I think about it this way, that I need to make sure I view death for a Christian on a whole different playing field. And so sometimes I'll actually view it in my own silly kind of imagination uh, like a sporting event. Like, I don't know, whether it's a basketball game or a football game, whatever it is. I mean, in some ways, when God takes believers out in this kind of thing, and he does, the Bible even talks about it in spaces that he can do it, um, it's not like, oh, they died, and that's like the end of the game. It's no, no, they're out of the game. Like, you can't play any longer. Like, you're off the field. Like, penalty. Like, you're, you're not in the game. Like, I can't use you anymore. You're coming home, you know, kind of deal. I mean, it's, it's not a great, it's not a good thing. I'm certainly not speaking it complimentary, but neither is it like, and they died. And it was just like the most horrible thing. I mean, like, no, really, death is not that bad. And so, again, for me, I, I, I kind of view this that way. And if that's a little bit helpful for anybody, well, then allow it to be, because again, there's a discipline happening here, but it's not you know, eternal, it very likely is just a space where they are taken out because, in that sense, again, uh, you know, God is, is presenting this here. The second thing I want you to think through in the midst of this is a very interesting biblical pattern that God does this at the beginning of almost every juncture in history. Anytime there's a new mo- movement, anytime God does something brand new, uh, it's as if in the midst of that newness, there will be something just like this take place. So we could go back to um, the space where Joshua is bringing the the children of Israel into the land of of Israel, you know, and they take out Jericho. There's an amazing, cool scene of them being able to march around the city, and they defeat it. You know the story, right? And then you get to the very next city, and we get this story of Achan, this man who kind of takes stuff for his own self, and God judges the whole nation on behalf of this one man's sin, it's a crazy moment that God is displaying both his righteousness and his holiness in that moment. We'd see other spaces, maybe even more significant. We would see when Moses erects the tabernacle. So in the book of Exodus, you get this whole account of them erecting the tabernacle of God that's going to be this place where they worship him. And so they're putting it all together there in the book of Leviticus, right? I mean, you're reading, if you read that through, you know, everything's being put together. And it's like the first days of the sacrifice, you know, first, you know, pillar of fire there, God's presence is there. And then these two guys, Nadab and Abihu, show up and they offer strange fire. They come up with their own sacrifice and fire comes out from the presence of God, kills them right then and there. They die. I mean, at that moment, they have to bury them in the same moment. In fact, there's so much in that account that mirrors this account that we'd be, again, amiss if I didn't just kind of point it out. So, tabernacle set up, place of worship, pillar of fire just descends onto the tabernacle, inaugurating this is, this is the place of my presence. Pentecost happens book of Acts. Holy Spirit is poured out, and tongues of fire now appear not in a single space, but over the heads of every one of the believers there. And there's just a a mirror here that's like, okay, that was the house of God. This is where God is being met. Now we're in a whole different thing. Now we are the house of God. Now God is meeting us, and so the place of His fire, the place of His presence is us. Ananias and Sapphira, 
I'm sorry, Ananias and Sapphira died, Nadab and Abihu, two people in the both spaces, you know, kind of stepping into the very early stages of this and messing it up, and God kills them. Kills them both. And so there ought to be some kind of like deja vu, like, okay, God does this. God does this, and, and, and he is making a statement in, the, in this whole place. There's a pattern that's happening here that is just incredible in one sense that God's communicating it, but it's not the way he always does it. Now, we need to talk about why here for a moment, but I just want to just make sure that you understand this, and you probably do. Like, it doesn't continue this way. I mean, it, it's not the kind of thing that anybody else who did a Nadab and Abihu, you know, would die. Like, it never happened again. Uh, nor is it a place that if we come into the church and people are, you know, playing the hypocrite, pretending to be something they're not because they want people to think highly of them, that they fall down dead. Because if that happened uh, in the church, I think we probably would understand every church would have to have a full-time morgue. Like, it would just, we'd have to, it would be like every Sunday, like, you know, every Sunday or Wednesday, it'd be like, another one died. Like, there they are again. Had somebody else again playing the hypocrite. They're you know, we'd have to have a full-time staff that would be like, that would just be like these guys. Oh, man, we just finished burying the last one. Now we're going to go bury somebody else again because, you know, quit. I mean, it would ha- I mean, honestly, just speaking it and, and just being clear, it would probably be me. I mean, it would probably be the Lord like, he's done. Like, he just pretended. He pretended to be something or not. I mean, I'd probably be the one dead. And, and so I just want you to understand, God does something, but it wasn't something that he continued to do. Now, he can do it. And he might. I mean, there may be spaces in church history where he and his holiness does, but it wasn't the thing that he did constantly. Nor was it meant to be something that we would understand that that's what he would do every time we played the hypocrite, that, you know, he's going to kill somebody. I mean, it's not how it happens, but there's a pattern that's happening here. There's a pattern that begins this, and it shows us in many ways God's passion. It shows us his heart. It shows us his holiness, because there just should be no doubt about it. Um, God wasn't having a bad day. It wasn't kind of the thing like, hey, you caught me on a bad day. I killed him because just, you know, had a bad day. I, did. I don't usually do that. I just do that. I mean, it's never the place with our God. He is the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow forevermore. So his display of his holiness is his holiness. Uh, it is his perfection. And because he's not doing that, it doesn't mean that he's changed his mind. Uh, it doesn't mean that he's not doing it that way because he doesn't care any longer, but because he's being gracious to us because he's being gracious to us in the midst of it, but he has that same passion, which should mean that it has this kind of productive space in us that it should bring us into this place that we would recognize, hey, God's really serious about this. I mean, like he, I mean, he looks upon this and this is how he feels about this, that you know, he looks upon this kind of hypocrisy and he hates it. I mean, he hates it. And so we should never confuse his patience, and his grace with his acceptance. You know, I think about how it says it in Romans 2. It's a longer section. You might want to read all of it later on your own. But he simply says, Why do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? He begins that chapter and says, If you're able to discern right and wrong, hey, don't think you're getting off of that. You know, don't think that because God now is being, you know, you're able to see what happens here wrong, think that somehow because God isn't doing that to you that he's changed his mind. No, he's being patient with us. 
He's giving us grace. He's giving us a space that, that allows us to see that, but he's drawing us to a place that we should be able to kind of see this with a godly fear. I like the way Psalm 89 says, it says, you know, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of his saints uh, and to be held in reverence by all those who are around him. He says, when we come together, it's as if we should be like, okay, God, I mean, this, this is the holy God. I mean, and he is holy and he is righteous. I don't know if that does it for you as I think it can, as I think it should. See, again, there's a few weird spaces this could go. You could look at this whole Ananias and Sapphira thing and be like, I'm so confused. I don't, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, you could even be frustrated with God. You're like, God, I don't, I don't think, you, think you did the wrong thing. You would be wrong. But I think some of the right places that we just come in here and say, God, I, if I've lost sight of that, you know, how, how serious you take this? You know, if I just come and, and recognize that, you know, I'm cut, you know, this, this is a church, but we're not here for each other. We're here for God, the holy, righteous God. I mean, like the holy, fearful, like, I mean, if he dealt with us, it was what we deserve, we probably all would die tonight. I mean, he'd just be like, okay, you guys are all hypocrites, you know? Like, I mean, seriously, I mean, maybe, maybe you're not, but you might be the only one if it's you, because most of us, and, and yet if we could look at that and be like, hey, I'm cool with it, instead of coming and saying, God, if I forgot that, if I forgot that you're a holy God, if I forgot how serious, am, am I doing that? Am I coming here more concerned what people think about me than what you actually think about me? I mean, is that what I'm doing here? You know, am I, am I talking to you or am I talking so people hear me? I mean, what, what's happening in this space? And you would recognize how serious God takes that in a good way, recognizing how oh, he's gracious, he's loving, but that's wrong, that's sin, and he would long to cleanse us out of that. There's something that's supposed to be happening here, and, and I don't know about you. I don't know how it lands with you, but I'm just gonna tell you, it terrifies me. I mean, in a good way, it's like, man, oh, man, Lord, wow. I mean, I don't know where I'd stand. I mean, if it needed to happen to buy you, Ananias and Sapphira, and I'd probably, yeah, God, and I, I don't want to be that person. I don't want to be that person that comes here and is more concerned what people think about me than what you think about me. I really want to reverse that. <laughs> I want to be like, I care what God thinks about me. I'd rather him be happy with me and all of you hate me. You know, that's, that would be fine with me if I had to choose. I mean, I'm more concerned of his pleasure. And, and so to kind of fix that becomes a healthy and holy moment. Well, we need to keep going for time's sake. And so we're watching all of this. And again, you, you get this. And great fear came upon all those in verse 11 and upon all those who heard these things. That's good. That should be happening. If it's happened even a little bit tonight, thank you, God. Continue doing it. And then it lets us know a little bit what happens. It says, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest of them dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. I mean, again, you can kind of just imagine, it's like, man, like people died hanging around you guys. I'm just not going to go there right now. Um, but believers, verse 14, were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities of Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So continuing unity, that's kind of how it begins. 
hey, they just continued in this one accord. They continue in that space where they, you know, have this singleness of heart in verse 12, this one accord in that place, and God's doing miraculous things. I mean, it's just cool to kind of think through, I mean, you know, were people actually healed by Peter's shadow? I mean, did these things happen? God's doing his things. He can do those things. It wasn't the shadow. It wasn't any of those things. It's just God doing some miraculous things. Fun to kind of watch that he still does. He's still a miracle-working God. We still should ask. We should seek all of that. But I think the thing I want you to just quickly note with me this evening before we're done is that a bunch of people kept getting saved. Like, it just kept increasing. And so you're, you're watching all this happening, and so it just says it again there as we're, as we're walking it through, as we're thinking about how that happens. It says, in believers, verse 14, were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. I mean, people are getting saved, and it's, in, and, and it's growing. I mean, it's kind of the thing where it's picking up a pace, where more and more and more people are getting saved. And I think the simple thing I want to land with this evening in thinking about that is you have no need to be afraid of God's holiness. You don't need to explain it away. Now, I, I may not be talking to just but like one person here in this moment, but to this one person I want to speak. See, we live in this weird generation where some people could look at Ananias and Sapphira and find themselves saying, oh, don't tell people about that. Like, they'll think God's weird, you know? I mean, you know, we shouldn't, I mean, you know, we, we, I mean, I'm just, you know, almost the kind of places, you know, the kind of thing where you'd almost like, hey, can we just like cover this up, you know? I want to tell my neighbor about Jesus, I want to tell him, but let's just, can I leave this story out, you know? Could I leave out this kind of account? Because I don't want people thinking God's vengeful. I don't want him, people thinking, you know, you know, anything badly about God. And so it just happens. Again, maybe it's not you, but I, I, I've had so many conversations this way where people are just like, man, almost feeling like they have to excuse or give an excuse for God. And I just want to tell you this, um, it was going the other way. Uh, there's something beautiful about God's holiness, as fearful as it is, um, and even as serious as it is, instead of being something that's turning people away from Jesus, it's attractive. It's attractive as much as it's scary. And, and I don't know how to make it more so right now, but I'll tell you it is to me. I'm so glad God is not like us. I'm so glad He's holy. I'm so glad He's righteous. I'm so glad he's pure. I'm terrified by it, you know. I mean, his holiness is scary. If you ever come close to it and you think, okay, anybody that ever gets close to it is. Uh, You know, get Isaiah, you know, who kind of sees God high and lifted up and he's like, woe is me, I'm undone. Like, you know, I I just, to be in your presence undoes me. But it's a good undoing. It's a good undoing. And, And I just simply offer it to you tonight that if you, if Ananias and Sapphira weird you out, I'm sorry, but it's a good space. It's a good space because our God's a good God and he's holy, and he's serious about things that would draw us into a place that would recognize who he is in an incredible, good, and godly way. So as we think about everything that's there, I simply want to just come back and just say, hey, we've watched this whole scene, this beautiful oneness, this troubling hypocrisy and judgment that God brings, and yet people are getting saved. You know, more and more are getting saved, and I just can't help but come back because I love that quote. It just captured me when I was thinking about it this week, that we think about so much of the problems of our world, and simply said, you know, half the misery in our world comes from trying to look instead of trying to be what one is not. You know, I say there's simply truth there. But I want to leave the rest of the world out, and I just want to talk to you. So many of your problems are trying to pretend to be something instead of actually becoming what you're not. 
being more concerned about what people think about you than actually being concerned about what you are. With actually about being saying, coming to the place of saying, God, I, I want to be right before you. I want you to change me from the inside out. I don't want to just look like I am, you know, uh, you know, worshiping. I want to actually worship. I don't want to just sound like I know how to pray. I want to actually pray. I want to actually find you changing me from the beautiful place of that inside out. So as we close this evening, that's where we want to end. And, and we want to do so by heading into a space that we're going to take communion. It's the last Wednesday night of the month, and so it's a place where we get to come and, and celebrate Jesus and recognize who he is. And there's so much here that just ties into that. I mean, the reason Jesus had to die is because, you know, we're sinners and God's holy. And, and there's that space of, of recognizing that we get to come before a holy God because of this. We get to come into that space and, and head into that. And so I just want to invite you to that. And yet in that invitation, it's meant to be that space that's still that place of cleansing us, of Jesus washing our feet, of Jesus cleaning us up in this moment. So I'm inviting you into that space tonight where maybe, I mean, just hoping you would come and say, God, I don't want to just try to look good. I want you to make me good. I don't want to just be worried about, you know, appearances. God, I want to come and say, cleanse me inside out and, and continue that work inside of me in Christ changing me, transforming me, renewing me, my mind, changing those spaces in me. And, and so I just want to invite you as we take communion this evening that that is where God would meet you. I do say this as we just head to this. I think probably most of you know this, but this is something for believers. This is something for us who know Jesus that we're reminded of what we are in Christ, what he's done for us, and being renewed and refreshed in that. We're longing that for you. But if you're here this evening and you don't know Jesus, then you need him. Going through the motions is hypocrisy. You know, you could come and take communion, but if you take communion without knowing Jesus, I mean, that's like the ultimate act of hypocrisy. I mean, be trying to wonder how people would see you instead of saying, no, I actually have a relationship with Jesus. And so we just invite you to actually have a relationship with Jesus. And so maybe that would mean not taking communion, maybe taking time to pray, talk to us afterwards. We'd love to walk you with that because our God's real. Like he knows us and he sees us and he's drawing us into that great space. So here's how we're going to do this. We do this on Wednesday night a little bit different. I'm going to pray, ask God to draw us into this. Worship is going to lead us in a couple closing songs. And we're going to pray to the communion uh, just up here in front of the stage. And we're going to invite you to come and take communion. Whenever you're ready, two songs. So you can do it in the first song. You can do that in the second song. You can take communion here up at the stage. You could kneel up here. You could take it back to your chair. You could stand. Uh, however this works for you, just, hey, between you and the Lord, step into this, remember this, and allow it to wash over you in a place of reality. Then when you're done taking communion, just continue singing with us. It's two songs. We want to invite you into that. So let's ask him for help in that right now. Father, we come to this space of remembering you Remembering you, Jesus, and dying for us. And in some ways, we've talked some about your holiness, only barely scratching the surface, but God, I'm so glad you are. And yet, Lord, we are so far from that. Lord, we're sinners. And some of that is active sinning, just doing the wrong things that are things that are murder or those kinds of things that could be a part of our world, but sometimes it's just this blatant hypocrisy, pretending to be what we're not. And it's a sin that you hate. It's a space that you never endorse. God, I read through Ananias and Sapphira, and you know, it's fascinating to me and terrifying to me. Because, Lord, I look on it and think, woe is me. 
Lord, woe is me that I could be a man that would be concerned what people would think about me, but not be paying attention to you. And Lord, I just don't want to be that. I think about the cross. I think about the reality that you worked in Christ. I think about what you are working, will work, and and all that this is. And I love that it's real. I love that you make us new creations in Christ. I love that you continue that transformative work that's not hypocritical. It's changing us from the inside out. So I just step towards it. And I pray that you'd meet me and you'd meet us here this evening, both in remembering that you are this hope to us, but in a fresh way, would you just wash us? Would you wash our feet? Would you cleanse us of of anything that is this? Would you cleanse us of hypocrisy? Would you make it so that we would look upon Ananias and Sapphira and say, Lord, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be that. Cleanse me, wash me from that in a way that is both real but attractive that people would be increasingly added to the church as your church falls in love with you and your holiness, even in a fearful way. Draw us to that this evening. Make it real, Lord. Make it real for each of us. We ask for that and just rescue us now, right here in this space. We ask for it together. In Jesus' name.